do you know your mother's name? My mom's name's Frances. I know her name. Uh, but more to the point then, because we all know our mother's names, most of us at least. Do you know your spiritual mother's name? Some of you may, some of you may not. Some of you might know a woman in your life who was formative in you coming to believe in Jesus. Others might have a deep uh, connection with Mary, the, the mother of God. But all of us in this room share a mother. The mother who was named the mother of the Gentiles in the third century. Uh, centuries after she lived, she was given the name Justa. Uh, she was the first Gentile woman, that is a non-Jewish woman, to respond with faith in Mark's gospel. But the gospels, they don't actually record her name. Uh, she's among the many unnamed men and women in the gospels, and she's commonly referred to as the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman. Yet Jesus refers to her as a dog. Yes, a dog. See, it's a little surprised that scholars throughout the centuries have said this is one of the most offensive passages in Scripture. After all, most of us in this room, if not all of us, are Gentiles. So Jesus has just called our mother a dog. We should take offense, or should we? And we'll get to that. But the encounter Jesus has with this woman today, it's, it's not the main story. It's one of two encounters in our passage. Uh, in Mark's gospel, most of the time, we find Jesus in Jewish towns, Jewish cities, dealing with Jewish issues. But occasionally in the gospels, Jesus will venture out beyond the borders of Israel into the surrounding areas. He'll venture into Gentile neighborhoods and cities. And in our passage today, he visits Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis. And so for his very Jewish followers, this would have been problematic. And we'll get to that too. See, perhaps more than any passage in Mark's gospel, there's two stories folding, unfolding at once. Yes, this is about a bold woman uh, with a desperate need coming to Jesus. We don't want to miss that. This is also about a, a man who receives his hearing and speech from Jesus. We don't want to miss that either. But this passage is also about much, much more. This is about how Gentiles relate to Jews and Jews relate to Gentile and how God relates to both. In other words, how God relates to all people. And last week we saw Jesus did this crazy thing. He declared all foods clean. And if he declared all foods clean, what else is he going to declare as clean? And that's the question Mark has set the stage with. So here's the big idea we're going to explore this morning. The crumbs that Jesus leaves under the table aren't sparse, but abundant. The question we have to ask ourselves, though, is are we willing to find our place under the table in order to eat them? So open your Bibles up with me to Mark chapter 7, beginning on verse 24. Uh, the, the text will also be on the screen. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. On June 4, 1940, Winston Churchill delivered one of his most famous speeches to the House of Commons of the Parliament of the United Kingdom. 
World War II was well on its way, and the British bulldog, as he was known, rallied the nation with this speech, and these words have been enshrined in the halls of histories. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Ah, it's so good. The right words at the right time for a nation in turmoil. But if the next day on June 5th, 1940, Mr. Churchill was found vacationing on Mordemunde Beach on the north shores of Germany, uh, the world would be left scratching their heads. What business would Churchill have in the oppressor's land, the enemy's land? In the same way, we should be shocked and left asking, what business does Jesus have in Tyre and Sidon? Well, maybe we should ask, what's so bad about Tyre and Sidon? This is what we now call uh, Lebanon. It was once known, though, as Tyre. It was north of Galilee, as you can see. And uh, in Scripture, it was the traditional enemy of the Jews, the stereotypical oppressor of God's people. And in Jesus' day, uh, Tyre it controlled the economy in Galilee, actually. Uh, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus wrote, that the people of Tyre were notoriously our most bitterest of enemies. And so the Jewish people hoped and they prayed for God to bring judgment on Tyre and Sidon. And this reason alone would be enough to question, why is Jesus going to these places? But in addition to this, according to other ancient Jewish writings outside of the scriptures, the Messiah would be ordained to expel the Gentiles, to subdue the Gentiles, not to visit and embrace them. They expected the Messiah to say a speech like Churchill's. We'll defend our land. We will fight off our oppressors. We shall never surrender to the Gentiles, let alone to Rome. But according to the cultural expectations of the time, the Messiah, the only reason he might visit a Gentile region would be to bring judgment, to condemn it. So just as it would be inappropriate for Churchill to vacation in Mornda Beach during World War II, many would be feeling the same way toward Jesus heading into the region of Tyre and Sidon. What business does he have with our enemies other than condemnation? So in our passage, we start in Tyre. That's where we begin. Jesus arrives, and we're told by Mark in verses 25 through 26, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. I love crescendos in music, don't you? I love it when the music builds and builds and grows and gets louder and more complex until it finally reveals the purpose of where the conductor or the artist is trying to take you. The introduction of this woman is like a crescendo. It builds and it builds. There's immediacy. This woman has a very sick daughter, a demon-possessed daughter, and she rushes to find Jesus. The urgency is building and building. She falls at Jesus' feet. The last time in Mark's gospel when someone fell at Jesus' feet, it was Jairus. And do you remember what happened? Jesus raised his daughter from the dead. Expectation is building and building. But then the building takes a curious turn. We get this crescendo of demerit. Demerit one, she's a woman in an extremely patriarchal society. She was seen as a nobody. Demerit two, she's a Greek Gentile. 
Demerit three. She's from the infamous pagans of Syria, Phoenicia. Demerit four. She has an unclean daughter, a demon-possessed daughter. This is what the ancient Jewish ears would hear building and building. Unclean, 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 unclean. One scholar, I like this comment, he wrote, even Levi, the tax collector, must have raised his eyebrows at this woman. Boom, Christian burn. Uh, <laughs> there's building urgency, a building sense of expectation, and then it delivers just this resume of demerit. It, it overshadows everything. Her astounding unworthiness is highlighted by Mark. She doesn't bring anything of merit to Jesus. She's not elite like Jairus. She's not a ruler of a synagogue. She's a Gentile woman. She's not impressive by Jewish standards. In fact, she's unclean. She's an outsider. She's even identified as an enemy. She deserves judgment, not help or salvation. She is of no significance. But while she may have nothing impressive to offer by human standards, she doesn't come empty-handed, does she? She brings two things. She brings her boldness and her raw human need. And that is all that is needed because time and time and time again in the Gospels, they see that this is precisely what Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for those who have the best resume or the best credentials in society or who are the most acceptable by their own standards. He's not looking for good people or horrible people, people with great portfolios or people with housing problems. He is looking for one thing, our raw need and our boldness to come to him with it. He doesn't want pride. He doesn't want ego. He doesn't want boasting. He doesn't want our worthiness. And Jesus, he's looking for people who are bold enough to come to them and, and to present their need and say, you're the only one who can meet this need. And that's precisely what this woman does, but that's what makes this interaction so peculiar and so weird. It's like Jesus takes on a new personality. He gets more combative. And we, we rarely see him be combative with people who are coming to him admitting their need. What does he say? Look at verses 27 through 28. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus refers to her as a dog, and it's not like he's tapping into his inner DMX. It's not like, yo, dog, like... <laughs> It's an insult. And this, this isn't like a gloriously groomed Yaletown dog riding in a stroller. Like these are, this is referring to street dogs, mangy, dirty, gross, filthy dogs. In the ancient Jewish mind, a dog was not a house pet that was significantly superior to cats. Uh, dogs are actually seen to be a lot more like cats, horrible creatures. And uh, in the ancient Jewish mind... Um, In the ancient Jewish mind, dogs were associated with uncleanliness because they ate garbage and corpses. And people who were seen as worthless or dispensable were called, you guessed it, dogs. Elsewhere, Jesus warns 
about entrusting what is sacred to dogs, and even describes human wretchedness and wickedness as a dog licking the sores of a beggar. In the rabbinic tradition, a dog was a term for the most despicable, insolent, and miserable person. The dog, or sorry, the people of the world are like dogs, declared the ancient rabbis. So what is Jesus doing here? Why is he calling this woman a dog? Well, do you remember the big idea from last week? Jesus declared all food clean. All food clean. He has the authority to do that. It's a massive paradigm shift, and the implication is being worked out before us here. If Jesus has the authority to declare all food clean, what else is he going to declare clean? So by calling this woman a dog, Jesus isn't saying, you're a Gentile. You're unclean. By your ethnic identity alone, you're unfit for the presence of God. He's actually telling a parable. She asks Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. But then Jesus does a little switcheroo on the language, doesn't he? He makes it about food. When it's not about food. Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's a parable. The question is, what does the parable mean? Well, as I already said, dog was a traditional distinction for the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were God's people, and everyone else who wasn't Jewish was a Gentile, and the rabbis referred to them as dogs. And Jesus says he came to feed the children. Well, who are the children? Well, according to passages in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Israel were God's children. The nation of Israel, this was their self-understanding that they were God's children. And Jesus says, I came to feed my children. And we just witnessed him do this a chapter before. He fed 5,000 people. He was enacting the works of God. He was feeding his children. He is the Messiah of Israel Jesus was Jewish. He was very, very Jewish. We have to get this into our minds. And so he came first and foremost to feed the lost sheep of Israel. Ouch, is that the full story? Hey, I can't help you because I came for my people. Of course not. Like all of the parables, this one is designed to evoke and to challenge. And this is the amazing part. The woman understands. And she pushes back. She says, yes, Lord. She's the first person to ever call Jesus Lord in Mark's gospel. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's like Abraham negotiating with God. It's amazing. And mysteriously, she understands that God's salvation comes first to Israel. We don't know how she knows this, whether it was divinely revealed to her or whether she was a God-fearer who was familiar with the scriptures, but she understands that salvation comes to Israel through the Messiah. But she also understands that God is so gracious and so good that when he feeds his children, there will be an overabundance. There will be a superabundance that even the dogs can be well-fed by the crumbs. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? There were more leftovers than when they started with. She says, yes, God's salvation, it comes first to Israel, but it's for the sake of the world, isn't it? But then she makes one slight but significant change, and it's easy to miss. Jesus uses the word technon uh, to say children, which is uh, to refer to biological children. 
But the woman uses the word pation, which is more inclusive. It, it includes both children and servants in a household. In other, in other words, she's saying, God is in the business of making more room at the table. God is in the business of adopting Gentiles, adopting outsiders and bringing them into his family. Isn't God's children not just technon, but aren't all of we pation? Aren't we all actually adopted? Israel was something special. You elected them. Well, how do we know if she's right? How do we know if God's making more room at the table? How do we know if God is inviting the Gentiles in? Well, look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to her, for this statement, you can go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon was gone. Matthew 15, 28, reflecting on this incident, includes Jesus saying, woman, your faith is great. Your faith is great. See, not only is she theologically correct and in a massively significant way, but Jesus also lets her gather up the crumbs. The crumbs are enough, even, just the crumbs to meet her need. Her daughter is healed. But here's what's truly remarkable about this whole interaction. This unnamed woman, this Gentile woman, this woman who would have been perceived as an enemy and on the outside and unclean, this woman is the first person in Mark's gospel to understand a parable. Jesus has been giving the secrets of the kingdom of God to his disciples, and they're like, Doy, like what, what does this mean, Jesus? She gets it. She understands. Not only does she understand, but she enters into the world of the parable, and she allows herself to be defined by the parable. She answers from within the parable. She lets Jesus set the terms. She says, if you say that I'm the dog in the story, fine, I'm the dog. The great reformer, Martin Luther, he said, he loved this story. And he said, uh, she took Christ at his own words. He then treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. But before we can even digest all of this, what happened to this woman, how beautiful and amazing it is. We're immediately taken from Tyre and Sidon to the Decapolis, which is a catch-all term for about 10 predominantly Gentile cities. It's almost like Jesus zooms out and he says, look, my mission isn't about one Gentile in one Gentile city. It's about all the Gentiles in all the Gentile cities. And it's in the Decapolis that Jesus heals a deaf, mute man a man who can't hear, a man who can't speak. We're told, we're told in verse 35, his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And in verse 37, that the people rejoice saying, he's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. But if we're honest, this seems like a little anticlimactic compared to the story we just read. How do, what does this have to do with the, the woman? Mark, he's saying to his readers, just in case you didn't get the last passage, here, here, this explains it all. This will help you understand that. But do we see it? I've been on a mission uh, to civilize myself as of late. Uh, I've been trying to appreciate higher, what's called higher culture. Uh, and so I started by listening to classical music, and I think I appreciate it. It's very musical. It's nice. Uh, <laughs> But the next hurdle for me was poetry. Uh, aside from like roses are red, violets are blue, I've never really connected with poetry. I've never understood it. I've never even tried. 
And I knew this creative arts service was coming up for quite some time. Colin and Derek pitched it to me and Shannon. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I don't get poetry, but I trust it'll be a nice time. And I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to give poetry a shot. And so I asked Shannon, like, where should I start? Because she wrote this great article about poetry on our blog. And she said, get a book called Poem for a Day. And I was like, I can handle that. One poem a day. I'll be so civilized by a year's time. And so one of the first poems I read it's called The Transmutation by Edwin Muir. Here's the first paragraph, which I believe poemers call a stanza. Uh, <laughs> that all should change to ghost and glance and gleam, and so transmuted stand beyond all change. And we be poised between the unmoving dream and the soul-moving moment. This is strange. This is so strange. Like, I've read this poem, <laughs> like... 20 times, I'm not kidding you, I find its imagery beautiful, I find it compelling, but I don't get it. Julia has walked me through this poem line by line by line to show me, like, this is about eternity, Alistair, you're a priest, you should get this. And not once has she done this, not twice, but three times, on three occasions, she has walked me through this poem. She got it immediately, she saw it, she had eyes to see, ears to hear, and I'm like, I have no idea, it's real pretty. Uh, I appreciate its beauty, but I miss its deeper meaning. All of a sudden, the paintings have this like, like line through it. We can look at the healing of this deaf and mute man and say, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. It is beautiful. But when it comes down to what it means, do we have eyes to see, ears to hear? What is so significant about this man gaining his hearing, gaining his speech, all of the miracles of Jesus are like poetry. They're beautiful because they're beautiful. It's beautiful to see a man receive these profound healings and gifts. But they're also beautiful because of what they signify. The deaf hearing, the mute speaking, it's a miracle that's taken place quite literally, but it's also the fulfillment of a promise, a really, really big and grand and lasting promise. Isaiah, Isaiah 35 uh, is essentially the final chapter of the first part of Isaiah. And it follows a series of long, really long, and harsh, and gloomy, and dark chapters declaring the very specific ways God is bringing judgment on all the nations, Edom, Egypt, Tyre, but even judgment upon his own people, Israel and Jerusalem. Nobody escapes the judgment of God because all are lost and gone astray. All are guilty before the eyes of God, his children, Israel, and all the nations, the Gentiles. But then comes Isaiah 35. Thank God for Isaiah 35. The shift happens, and then Isaiah tells us a time when the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all the nations. And in Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, this is what we read. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Mark is telling us this miracle, this beautiful healing, this is about that. This is that promise being fulfilled in our presence. The outsiders are welcome. The foreign Gentile nations are welcome. The deaf hear, the mute shout for joy. It's a sign, people. It's a sign that the glory of God is here, that the kingdom that is to come is breaking into this present place here and now. Isaiah is constantly 
constantly the backdrop of the gospel of Mark. If you remember when Jesus told the first parable in Mark's gospel, what was the key to understanding it? Mark chapter 4. Do you remember? A prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus said, they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. He's saying humanity has a seeing and hearing problem. People can encounter him and see him and hear him, but not understand, not perceive what's going on. But what's beginning to happen? This is a shift in Mark's gospel. The woman, she sees and perceives, she hears and she understands The man, he hears and he understands and he can speak of the glory of God. People are turning and finding forgiveness. They're seeing and hearing because Jesus has commanded that they can see and hear. This is a major, major moment in Mark's gospel. When people finally start to see, when they finally start to perceive, when they finally start to hear and understand. In other words, when they start to get who Jesus is and what he came to do, What's the turning point? It's the Gentiles. Just as Jesus declared all foods clean, he is declaring all people clean. No one is beyond receiving the grace and love of God in Christ, not even our enemies. This is a revolutionary people, like a message for the people of Israel, that the enemies are the first ones to receive and understand the grace of God's Messiah. Which means you have never locked eyes with someone that God does not love. Because there's abundance. There is no short supply. Even the crumbs, even the crumbs under Israel's table are enough to feed the nations because God isn't stingy with his salvation. He doesn't only provide for his biological children, but also for his adopted children. Yes, salvation comes first to Israel because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah fulfilling the promises that God has made to his people. But he's also fulfilling what Israel was always supposed to be. God set them apart, not for the sake of setting them apart, but for the sake of the nations, that they might be a blessing to all the nations, that people would look to Israel and come to know the living and true God. And Jesus fulfills this, and he says, if you look to me, all are welcome. I'm the fulfillment of Israel. The question remains for us. Are we willing to find our place in the parable? Are we willing to come under the table to eat the crumbs of salvation? Like this woman, are you willing to enter the parable and let Jesus define you by his terms? Oh, this is so difficult for us. Because we want to set the terms. We want the good stuff. We're happy to talk about a God of love and grace and mercy and compassion, a God that's slow to anger. We love to talk about Jesus and how he lifted up the marginalized, how he was pro-woman in an anti-woman society, how he did all these amazing miracles. We can talk about that stuff all day and we say, yes, we'll take that part. But it's a lot harder for us to be defined by the other messages of Jesus, like last week's message. Your heart's evil. You're wretched. You're wicked. Uh, Judgment is coming. Eternal separation from God is the reality on the other side if you don't have faith in me. We don't want to be defined by that part of the story. But what the mother of the Gentiles, our mother, is teaching us 
is that the way of seeing and hearing and entering into God's forgiveness and grace is allowing God to define us by his terms. Are you willing to be a dog who eats the children's crumbs? Are you willing to get on your hands and knees? Because salvation requires us to get on our hands and knees like our mother. It requires us to see that we bring nothing impressive to the table. Because the only thing Jesus is looking for is our boldness to come to him in our unworthiness. He wants our boldness, our boldness to present our raw human need. Because we need him. We need the mercy he offers instead of judgment. It's because of grace. We need this sheer, undeserved grace that we can't merit or earn or warrant. And it's this grace that God feeds us, even with the crumbs. It's grace that he feeds those with absolutely nothing to offer. See, we're all dogs before Jesus. And yet Jesus is in the business of making dogs into his children. And the crumbs of his bread are enough to save the entire world. How do you know if you've tasted the crumbs of salvation? What happens to the, the, uh, the lame and the, the mute? You'll leap like a deer. You'll sing for joy. You'll experience a profound freedom and a joy. And your greatest delight will be in God before everything else. He will be your treasure and your joy because the creator of the universe is for you so nothing can be against you. But why? Because Jesus bore our judgment for us on the cross. He bore the judgment of every nation, every person. And he was scorned and rejected and derided as insignificant. He was spat upon and ridiculed. He became mangy and dirty and humiliated in his nudity. In other words, Jesus was treated like a dog for us. So we might be adopted in his children. Paraphrase Martin Luther again. If you take Christ at his own words, he'll treat you not as a dog, but as a child. And that's why just a taste of Jesus is enough. Just the crumbs are enough. Because just a crumb from under his table has the power to make you a child of God. All you have to come and do is present your raw human need that you need forgiveness, that you need grace, that you need mercy and that you can't earn it, but that you believe God is a generous God who pours out in abundance even in the crumbs. Lastly, this passage for us as a church reminds us that our calling is not to remain inside the comfortable walls of our church, not to stay in the catacombs of uh, Vancouver. It's to go out, to step out of our little bubble, to go into the places that where we think these people are too far gone. They couldn't possibly want the gospel of God. And I get it. You know, in Vancouver, it really seems like where a spiritual climate is apathy, people don't want the crumbs. But it's never been our responsibility to change hearts or open eyes or open ears. Our responsibility is to gather up the crumbs, to be lifted up by Jesus and embraced by him, and then he sends us out. 
He says, go, feed the nations. Go, proclaim the gospel. Go into your workplace. Go into your home. Go into your school. Go into transit and bring this joy with you, the joy of the gospel, the joy of the good news that transforms every square inch of creation. Because people, you have never locked eyes with someone that does not matter to Jesus. No one is too unclean. No one is too far gone. And when we have received these crumbs, when we know our place as dogs, under the table, it changes everything. This is a better vision of diversity and hospitality than anything the world can offer. But the only way we can embody it, the only way we can truly be a sent people is if we gather up those crumbs and let them nourish us and produce Christ-likeness in